Christina from Gravel Trap F1 here, and I've got some big news. As you're well aware, Formula One is not the only open wheel racing out there. So, the Gravel Trap is expanding its repertoire into IndyCar with a new podcast called Gravel Trap Indy, hosted by myself and our newest member of the Gravel Trap family, Justin Reschke. That's right, Christina. If you're a longtime IndyCar fan or an F1 fan who's been curious about Indy but don't know enough about it yet, we're making a show for you. We'll be covering both current events, races, driver market news, as well as digging deep into the rich history of IndyCar to recount some of the most exciting stories ever to come out of the sport. Join us. It's going to be a blast. Look for Gravel Trap Indie wherever you get your podcasts. Were you on the front lines of the panic when Max Verstappen crossed the line and there was this big question whether or not Charles was going to get that penalty and whether or not it was going to solidify the championship? I'm sorry if I've hit a sore spot. <laughs> the, 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 the listeners need to know that I have my hands over my face right now. I have PTSD remembering that day. So what had happened? I'm Christina. I'm Caroline. And this is Gravel Trap F1. Have you ever wondered where the commentators on an F1 broadcast get all those fun statistics during each race? I have always wondered that. Well, this week we interview the man behind that curtain, Sean Kelly, otherwise known as Virtual Statman. There's probably no better source of information about F1 history on the tip of their tongue. We discuss all the juicy statistics behind some of Formula One's biggest moments. Like who has the longest gap between their first podium and their last podium? Which used to be Michael Schumacher, but it's now Fernando Alonso. We had such a blast talking with Sean that this episode will be quite a bit longer than our usual though. But trust us, it's absolutely perfect. Well, do you want me to save that for when we're going? Because I don't want to talk your ear off before we start. Well, it's recording. Unless, oh, we're going. Unless we're we going. have started. We're going. <laughs> I think I followed you on Twitter for at least well over a year, if not two years now, and really enjoyed the, a lot of the data you put out. But selfishly, part of the reason that I wanted to have you on the show was to know what exactly is your job in F1 and how did you get into it? What do I do in Formula One? Well, that's one of life's great mysteries, indeed. So I am in charge of all of, basically in charge of all of Formula One's broadcast stats content. So when you hear a commentator say, this has not happened since such and such a race, this is, if he does this, it'll be an all-time record. If this happens, then this will happen. All these sorts of things. I write all of that material for the broadcasters. I prepare it in advance and I provide it live as we go along because they use a system called Virtual Stat Map, which is the origin of the handle that I use on social media. A horrible name to be introduced as, by the way. I think it's a terrible name. Like, I hate when I'm at a track and they say, please say, can you put your hands together for the Virtual Stat Man. I'm like, I'm here. I'm the actual Stat Man. I'm actually here. Yeah. I'm not virtual. <laughs> like, Virtual Stat Man is the thing that I operate. That's like saying, you know, Lewis Hamilton does an appearance. Please say hello to racing car. You know, no, that's not that's not me. That's the thing that I operate. That's um, good point. Anyway, 
Um, that's uh, that's uh, unfortunately is how I seem to be. I seem to be known. I'm typecast as a virtual stat man. Um, but uh, see, your your cat is approving of my job description. He's in a mood today, but yes. Well, cats are always a mood, aren't they? Um, <laughs> that's what I've become known for in Formula One. So, a lot of the things you hear and we'll see from you know social media kind of diffuses outwards from what we put to air, which means no pressure. I have to come up with that stuff. Um, and um, it's not just the <laughs> yeah. broadcasters these days. I mean, you know, Formula One's social media department uses a lot of it. Two of the Formula One teams actually use me for their comms department. They, they, they just outsource the statistical content to me. And I also write some of the stuff that you see in the race programs that you can buy at the track. And then I also appear on the stage because I also can do this stuff live in front of the audience, both before and after a session. And they've lately realized that, well, why don't we get him to actually interview people as well? Because he really, really knows what he's talking about, allegedly. So um, <laughs> I think as much as anything, I think as much as anything, someone, someone works out in the finance department. Wow. He can talk and talk and talk. And he's a hundred grand cheaper than Jensen Button. He's hired. That's amazing. <laughs> so that, oh, in, that in a nutshell is what I do. So do you have a photographic memory to remember all of these? If, I wish I had a photographic memory because if I did, I wouldn't be doing this job. I'd be, I would have made it to okay. Las Vegas a lot earlier than this November. Um, I, I actually <laughs> don't really have, I don't have as good of a memory as people think I do. I think it's old man's disease a little bit as I've gotten older, but also there's saturation of information because, you know, to give you an example, I did probably 20 hours of research, actual studying research, not 20 hours elapsed time, but 20 hours of actual work mm -hmm. for Hungary this weekend. And then you'll oh, do wow. the same thing again for Belgium. So there's so much to go through that by the time I've actually finished and I submit it to the broadcasters, I can't remember half of the stuff that's in it. I had to actually sure. sit down and read my own work again to realize, oh, okay, that's an interesting stat. I don't, I don't remember writing it, but I, it's in there, so yeah. I must have done. <laughs> and then quite a lot of the time I'll read it and go, that can't be right. That, that doesn't, I, I, that, I've completely lost it. There's no way that's right. And then I'll go and check it and be like, oh, it is. Blimey, okay. I guess I can keep my job for another week. Um, <laughs> so, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it gets increasingly difficult to remember everything. Um, but part, you know, half of my job, in fact, the majority of my job is not can you remember it, it's can you find it in less mm -hmm. than five seconds? We're on live television. And that's mm -hmm. probably why I'm considered so useful within live television is that, you know, it's bang. Okay, yeah, here it is. Boom. Okay, Hamilton's out in Q1. All right, well, here's all the instances of Q1 uh, that he's been out in the last 10 years. And, you know, here's what he does when he's out in Q1 in the race and blah, blah, blah. So it can all wow. instantly appear on their screen in the commentary box. There you go. There's your talking points vis-a-vis -vis whatever has just happened in Q1. So that that's why I'm I'm still around, I guess, 20 years into it. 20 years after I talked my way into Formula One, as audacious as I was, hiding my age really? down the telephone, pretending I was older. Yep. Yeah, I didn't want them to know I was 22 when I started because I... Pulled a Mila Kunis. I, I well, I figured that they'd never hire me if they knew how young mm -hmm. I was. Because I thought, I don't know any other 22-year-old who knows this depth of knowledge. I certainly wouldn't hire me. So what? I can't convince them on that basis. So I, I remember giving a long, meandering sort of word salad about the revisions to the Watkins Glen circuit before 1971. 
because I wanted mm-hmm. them to think that I was old enough to know that when it happened. Um, That's brilliant. Yeah, worked out quite well. And I got hired um, <clears throat> partly, not, not, not on that basis, but it was kind of just a subtle mind control. Actually, when, when uh, Frank Wilson, who was the uh, coordinating producer at Speed Channel, who was the very first network to hire me, when he eventually met me, he actually thought I was the son of the person he had hired. Um, no he way. Said he, got, he said I got this. He said I, I said I got this close to saying, "Hey, kid, where's your dad?" No <laughs> oh my goodness! Way. So, so it worked. Oh, so did you cold call them and just say? Yes, I did. Yeah, I, it took me a couple of days. I had wow. to. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was after Suzuka O two. Uh, Michael Schumacher just won yet another snooze fest, eleventh win of the year. We don't know anything about that. Yet again, no. I mean, it never happens these days, does it? Um, <laughs> and I had, you know, and kept everybody in the room awake by giving, you know, Sean Kelly's talk about memory lane back in the back in my day. But bear in mind, I was twenty-two. Back in my day, when I was eight, talking about the <laughs> McLarens of Senna and Bros. Um, and everyone always, it always said, like, why don't you try and get a job doing something in Formula One? I mean, you. you very clearly know what you're talking about and i used to sort of dismiss it and think well i don't really think that's feasible i mean who really makes money doing that um and then eventually i thought well i haven't actually got any money now so the worst that can happen is they say no and i haven't actually lost anything so i I called i called i had an american girlfriend at the time who lived in arizona and so i called fox sports in arizona because the new fox was the parent company of speed channel uh, I couldn't find Speed Channel's numbers. Bearing in mind, this was the early days of the internet. This wasn't stuff you could find quite easily. Um, so I called Fox Sports in Arizona. They put me through to Fox Sports in California, which is the head office of Fox Sports. They put me through to Speed Channel's corporate office in Los Angeles, who in turn put me through to Speed Channel's production office, which was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I called and said, hello, could I speak to the Formula One producer, please? And um, the the receptionist said, certainly, who should I say is calling? And I said, um, Tell them it's Sean Kelly and they're expecting me. <laughs> <gasps> no. no idea. No idea. Um, oh my God. I don't know who these people are. I've never spoken to them before in my life. Um, so they're certainly not expecting to hear from me. They have no idea. They'd be embarrassed that they didn't um, remember Sean's calling. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, what are you guys playing at? Um, and I got, I went through to the aforementioned Frank Williams voice, uh, Frank Williams, honestly, I'm just, the amount of times I said Frank Williams instead of Frank Wilson is unbelievable in my career. Frank Wilson's yeah. voicemail. And um, uh, I, I can't remember what I said, but it would have been something along the lines of, hey, I've, you know, I, I think I might be able to do a job for you researching. And I played the odds because I thought, I bet Speed Channel don't get that type of phone call about Formula One as much as, say, ITV would in the United Kingdom. So I thought percentages... Mm-hmm. They're much less likely to get that phone call in the U.S., so I'm going to call the U.S. broadcaster. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I was playing, I was playing the percentages even before I actually got the job. And um, wow. I think eventually Frank acquiesced to the idea a month before Melbourne '03. So it's February of '03. So I spent months calling him and nagging him about it. And I think as much as anything, he, he actually said, "I'll, I'll, I'll hire you, um, but we can't pay you very much. Only like 200." And I, mm-hmm. at the other end, thinking, yeah, that's fine. Because yeah. I'm thinking, well, that's 200 yeah. more than I've got now. Um, that's right. That's and right. I, and <laughs> I, I put the phone down and, and I put, I thought to myself, did he mean 200 a race or 200 for the year? 
I didn't actually ask what he meant <laughs> and he never clarified. He might have meant $200 yeah. for the whole year. And I, I, I honestly think that he offered me that money just to get me to stop calling him. I think he, he thought like, if I just give this guy some dollars, he'll go away <laughs> and he might produce something that's vaguely useful to us. Who knows? We'll see what mm -hmm. happens. Um, but once I got that opportunity, I thought, well, the first thing I thought was, was terror because I, I, I had no now idea. Now you have to do it. Yeah. yeah, now you have to do it. Now, now you think, right, this is it. Now this is shit or get off the pot. This is the moment of truth. Yeah. Are you actually, do you actually know anything about what you're talking about? Or are you just a fraud who's been living a lie your whole life? Um, I didn't know what format they wanted. I didn't know how many pages it was supposed to be. I didn't know, I didn't even know what, you know, did you want it as a PDF? Do you want it as a Word document? Do you want it as an Excel file? I, there was no brief. I had to make the mm -hmm. whole thing up. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we use in Formula One now across sort of industry standard came from the brainstorm session of February 2003 when I thought, what do I think they should use? Because wow. there was no, there was nothing to go on. So I thought, well, I think the format should be this. And most of the format, I'd say about 80% of the format we use to this day came from that period of um, of terror <laughs> I've got to do this properly um, and fortuitously fortuitously this is this is where luck really came into it I came in at the start of 03 and that was the year when um, Alonso started at Renault and mm -hmm. Raikkonen uh, won his first race as well so we had Raikkonen and Alonso that was the year they they won their first Grand Prix and Alonso was on pole in, in the second race I did in Malaysia and Raikkonen won the race. It was Raikkonen's first win. Um, so all of a sudden, um, there was all of these record-breaking age stats to lean on. Um, Schumacher wasn't winning races. Ah. That was another thing. And it seemed like, wow, there's so much happening and this guy is on top of everything. When in reality, if I'd come in in 2002, it would have been, okay, uh, another Schumacher win. What should we talk about? Um, yeah. yeah, and I guess I, I guess I'm being I guess I'm being tested like that right now in 2023 with Max Verstappen. You know, even though <laughs> it's even though it's dominant, there are things that we can talk about. You know, the fact that Red Bull are going for the all-time record for consecutive race wins this weekend. Um, mm -hmm. Verstappen is going to trying to tie the record for consecutive wins from pole position. Um, I think he has the fourth longest streak for podium finishes. That you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot that he's actually been doing. So even though it's boring to some it is also record-breaking to others so that's uh, that's the eye of the beholder sort of stuff or or maybe i'm just the eternal optimist no that's amazing um you're talking a lot about like the format that you sort things through for the race weekend but whenever i see those stats out i'd always assumed that there was this like just magical database that had built up like been built up where each year in each race all of these numbers were sorted but you're talking about doing research so is it just each race weekend going out and getting information no big like holy bible database well most people can access the actual race results and stats if you go to forex which is part of you know also sport subscription i think still um, you know, it's in the public domain, you, you know, it's for, for, for a small fee, you can access the entire motorsport database. So that in itself is not something I offer because that's something you can get very cheaply. The thing is, is that you need to actually turn it into something that we can use in a broadcast. You know, we, I could bore you to death with raw numbers and you will be bored to death. But if I could cross reference it with something that 
Jim Clark did or Juan Manuel Fangio did, um, then it becomes interesting. Um, say, for instance, a, a, a good example, um, Max Verstappen this weekend, if he gets into a battle with Lewis Hamilton for the race victory, there's an added little bit for numerologists this weekend because Hamilton will be trying to prevent Verstappen winning his 44th race. That's Hamilton's lucky Ooh. number, of course. So, <laughs> so you see, if we get into that situation, oh, you've kind of got that in the pocket. Like, oh, okay. Can, can Hamilton, of all people, stop Verstappen winning number 44? Um, so little things like that. You know, you, you try and cover what you think is likely, but then there's a few other things you keep in, in, in your back pocket just in case things get a, a bit unorthodox. Um, so you, you don't really want to just give them raw numbers. You don't want to say, oh, Verstappen's just won his bloody, bloody, blah race, you know. Um, but if you can say to them, well, that's as many as Zayat and Senna scored in his entire career, and Verstappen's only taken five more races to get there, um, you're like, wow, okay, that's pretty impressive. Was that you that came up with the one, it was Alonzo going for, there was something that came out recently where Alonzo was going to get his, like, 30th podium on the 30th race. There was this repeated number that came out oh, recently. Oh, the Lara Winter, the Lara Winter posted about? In Garage 33, 33rd win that right. weekend? 33% yeah. of oh, all yeah, that races. Was in, that, was, that was in, the Garage 33 one was in Jeddah, I think. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I just happened to know that because uh, one of the people who oversaw the admin in Jeddah had pointed out to me that, hey, you know who's in Garage 33? Alonzo. The old 33 thing, right? Um, and then the Alonso in Spain, we ran the stat that with him starting in Spain, Alonso had therefore started one in three of all world championship races to have ever been held, um, which starts to make him sound completely prehistoric. Um, you know, like he was competing when it was still, still in black and white. Um, and, um, you know, props to him because he's the only guy left who was on the grid in my first Grand Prix working in F1. He's still here. Me and him have never got our real jobs. We're just, we're just going to keep carrying on until we fall off the perch one way or the other. That's amazing. Um, so there are a lot of Alonso stats. There are, mm. there, there are so many because, because of what he's doing at this age in his career. For the, for the very fact that he is in with a shout of winning a race over the age of 40. Only one race in the last half a century has been won by a driver over the age of 40. Drivers over 40 do not win races. And yet Alonso has been close to doing that on several occasions. And then there's the fact that he is in contention to win or take pole positions 10 years after the last time it happened. That, again, is completely unprecedented. So, uh, yeah, there's so, many, there's so many angles on Alonso right now. If he's on the podium this weekend, in fact, if he's on the podium any weekend from now on, he'll break Michael Schumacher's record for time interval between first and last career podium finishes so every week there's something wow. that alonso's doing that nobody's done before um <laughs> so you know it's amazing that they got him out the old people's home and back in the car at all let alone the fact that he's still consistently fantastic so mm. you know there's hope for us old guys yet because now i am an old guy when i started i was pretending to be an old guy now i'm actually the older guy I knew I was, I knew I was old because when we came out of lockdown in 2020, suddenly I was getting DMs from people saying, oh, I want to get into Formula One. You've been in Formula One a long time. Tell me how you do it. I thought, well, okay, this is, 
<laughs> this is different now. Now I'm not the new guy. Like now I'm actually like part of the furniture. Now they're cold People calling me. me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm like, okay, I've, 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 at least I know what they're going through when they do this because I've, like, I had yeah. to do it on the phone. I didn't know any yeah. of these people. At least they can, at least they can sort of psychologically evaluate me on my social media before they dive in. <laughs> Whereas I was just complete calling. I don't know who this person is. Could be a serial killer for all I know. I have no idea what mood they're going to be in or anything. But we're calling them anyway. We'll see what happens. By the way, that got particularly fun when I started dealing with international networks. So I'd be cold calling German television. So the receptionist oh would answer in German, and it would sort of be a roulette potluck whether or not they actually spoke English or not. <laughs> oh so, my god! You know. <laughs> That got entertaining quite a few times. So this virtual Statman system, is that something you developed to to comb the database that Christina's talking about, to, to sort that data to a usable figure? No, no, it, it's not It's not even that complicated. Honestly, virtual Statman is just, it, it's, it's nothing more than a glorified chat window. It just, it appears on their screen in the commentary box if they log into it, much like a, the race control screen. So it's just a, a series of statements that update in real time as the cars are going around the racetrack. So, you know, if, if say, like Norris leads the first lap in Silverstone. Okay, so this is Norris's first time in the lead since he spun off in Sochi in 21 when he when was three mm -hmm. laps to go and he was winning it. He hasn't led a race since then. This is the first <sighs> time. So instantly that Damn. appears on the screen as soon as Norris, as soon as Norris gets the lead. Mm -hmm. um, so they've got something to go to there. Okay, wow. Okay, straight out, straight out of the box, this McLaren are back in the lead of Grand Prix. Um, you know, it's the first time they led the first lap of a Grand Prix since uh, Ricardo, I think. I think it was. Um, no, 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 that's not true. I'm lying. First time they led the first lap at Silverstone since 2012 or something like that. Um, wow. So, yeah, there's straight away. You, you, you. As soon as the race starts, you're like, okay, so what are we dealing with here? What's the situation? It's a bit like looking at a chessboard and thinking, mm -hmm. okay, so what do we think is interesting here? What, what's the next move that we're going to be looking at? Um, and it's important to keep it on a need to know basis because you could bombard them with stuff, but mm -hmm. it, it's that's that's where the editorial, I guess, that's where my editorial influence comes in because I have to think to myself. If I was actually watching this on television, is this something that I would think was interesting? Because if it isn't, we shouldn't put it out, you know, because remember, people have come to see the cars go around the racetrack and the battles and all that stuff. They haven't come to listen to a mathematics lecture. So <laughs> you should always bear in mind the, the, the analogy I've always used in my career is our job is like the ball boy at Wimbledon. If we do our job properly, we actually add to the product you've come to see without you noticing we're there. That's, mm -hmm. that's our uh, job. We are not the headline act. We are here to supplement the headline act. So um, you, you only want to drop that stuff in when you think it's going to add something to your viewing experience. So you mentioned that you, they sometimes will put you behind the mic and they'll put you on the stage. Do you prefer being in, in, in backstage or do you prefer being on stage? I much prefer being on stage because... Okay, um, that's great. It's... It's so easy, honestly. Yeah. I don't know what all the, I don't know what all the fuss is about. It's such an easy job. Stand there, stand yeah. there and say words. I mean, that's not exactly brain surgery. Um, you know, mm -hmm. when you spend three or four days researching a race, that is really dull, really tedious. It takes all day and all night, and you end up like this greasy mess. Like you haven't showered or anything like that, and you're just sitting there thinking, why? Why is this my job? This is just. 
I thought this was going to be glamorous doing Formula One. I was just sitting here, like eating Pringles and chocolate and getting a bad diet and, you know, <laughs> finding out finding out the finer details of Yuki Tsunoda's Formula Three results at this racetrack. And you're just thinking, well, are we ever mm. going to use this stuff? <clears throat> um, but then you go out on the stage and then suddenly there's an audience and, and you can play with the audience. You can make them laugh. You can say, you know, you can go off on a tangent. If somebody shouts out that they're a Lando Norris fan, you'll mention, oh, yeah, let's talk about this. You know, if somebody shouts out that they're a Gasly fan, oh, yeah, we'll go this way. Um, so that's much more fun. I mean, I've been lobbying for a while that we should have in Formula One a, a segment in the pre-race, at least the pre-race, I would also say the post-race, that pertains to stats and history. Because if you watch like general election coverage, the most interesting part of general election coverage is always whatever person has the big screen and all the data maps and all of that stuff. And then you can sort of, you can sort of reference like, oh, this happens, this happens, blah, 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 blah. If this happens, this might happen. And I've said for quite a while now, I said, well, if you have someone who happens to write all that material uh, and is used to being on the stage um, and is very, very quick at being able to come up with this stuff, um, we can actually utilize elements of the tape library that otherwise never, never go out. So, you know, we could, it's all very well referencing McLaren in 1988, but that happens a lot with, with content. You know, it doesn't, if you're just talking about Senna in general or Prost in general, you might use that. But I, I mean, I can remember we did, during lockdown, we did a thing called Virtual Paddock Club. And I had to actually write and produce a five or six minute segment every, well, qualifying and the race every weekend which I would then present in a studio from my house. Um, and I'd have to click, I'd have a clicker in one hand, like a weatherman's clicker, so I could advance everything yeah. in the presentation as I'm talking live on camera. And then I, on my right hand, I had the ability to mix between the cameras. So I had full screen of me, full screen of the video reel, and I had picture in picture, and I could switch between three of them. So in my right hand, I was mixing cameras. And in my left hand, I'm advancing the presentation while talking to the camera. So um, it was quite elaborate. And, it's like a one-man show. Goodness. Yeah, yeah. So I could do all that. But, I, but it took me like five or six hours to come up with this five or six minutes of content because I would have to write the script and had to go and find the tape, you know, and, and I, would, I would do that using F1 TV because I was because obviously they're the rights holder. So they, they right. just said, oh, yeah, just use anything you like because it's, you know, we, we own it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and I would use, try and use the most obscure stuff you know, I can recall there was some, some one week I used Delara at Imola in 1992. I had to find a, a B-roll shot of the Delaras racing at Imola in 1992. Not wow. the Ferraris, but the Delaras, because I was re referencing Ferrari as a customer engine supplier. So I had to go and find mm. shots of Delara, who were a customer Ferrari supplier, in a customer Ferrari team in 92. Ferrari never supplied customer engines in until 1991. Um, so I thought, ah, oh, great, here we go. I'm going to blaze them now. I'm going to use this really, really obscure stuff that they would <laughs> never, ever, ever, ever use. Um, and you get to see this rarity, you know, this, what, what car is this? I've never heard of this car. I've never heard of this team. I didn't know that Delara were in F1 at all. Um, so you start doing weird and wonderful things with it um, that, um, you know, it's just an excuse to go crazy with the tape library. And my argument is if someone tunes in an hour and a half before the race starts, they're really going to find that interesting because they're really, yeah. really like nerdy super fans. If you're tuning in that early um, and that's my crowd. So I, I, I've been saying <laughs> for a while now, give them to me. 
let me handle them because <laughs> it's five or six minutes of content oh, yeah. for pennies on the dollar compared to, mm-hmm. you know, getting a Formula One car on track or like even a classic F1 car or, you know, going to interview a driver who's, you know, on a helicopter ride or something. You know, all this weird and wonderful stuff. And I said, look, you could also do a lot of content with everything you already own. You don't have to pay mm-hmm. for it. All you need is a dude who can make that content. And lo and behold, here I am. Hi, guys. Um, yes. 20 years experience of doing it. Um, I think I can handle it. You know, so um, it, that was a hell of a long way of saying, yes, I prefer being on stage. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. I think about like Toto Wolf and how he has this deal with Harvard, how he's a, an adjunct professor with them. Now, they need to bring you in. I feel like you would teach a great masterclass <laughs> at Harvard. Well, I tell you what, I, um, one of the best compliments I've ever had in my career was in Abu Dhabi last year. And I, had, I was hosting all of Shell's guests. And oh, wow. the, the brief for the race was tell them about, talk them through Ferrari's race strategy. Keep them interested. Now, as it <laughs> happened, that race was that it was obviously Verstappen had already won the title, but oh. it was up for grabs who was going to be second um, in mm-hmm. the constructors championship. Whether it was going to be uh, uh, Checo or Charles. For, hang on, uh, in, hang on a minute. I'm getting I'm getting myself tied in a knot. It was it was Checo or Charles in the drivers championship. Yes, sorry. Um, yes. Uh, so that battle was, you know, ongoing in the race and. I, our suite overlooked Ferrari's garage. We're on the other side of the racetrack where the main grandstand is. So we could see what the mechanics were doing all the time. And every time I talk about lap time progression and the pit lane deltas and all this stuff, you know, I, I, I walk across the, the suite with my wireless microphone and say, let's see what the mechanics are doing. And they're in the garage. Okay, they're okay right now. They feel like it's, they're confident, blah, blah, blah. You know, I try to make it as tactile as possible because it, otherwise it sounds like a normal commentary. But when you can actually look with your own eyes into the garage, what's going on? Um, and you say to them, on the, on the pit wall, Ferrari are trying to work out what's the best plan of action without me being too condescending and saying, they'll make a balls of it again, guys. Trust me, I've been at loads <laughs> of these races this year and they'll balls this up. But, you know, um, you don't want to say that either. Um, you know, but like, you know, they've, they've had a few, they've had a few miscalculations this year, which, you know, in all seriousness shows you that even the best brains in the world can, can get this wrong. So this is a critical calculation of what they're going to do here, how they're going to play it. So I did all that. And Leclerc was second, um, which is, you know, I'd said before the race, I think that's the best they're going to get out of this. I don't think they're going to catch Max anyway. It's all about second place today. So they got that and everything. And at the end of it, I was approached by the guy who'd been sitting in the front row. Now, the guy who'd been sitting in the front row the whole time, I knew him as soon as he came in. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe like this person sitting in the front row when I had to talk about strategy. And he came over to me afterwards. He said, Sean, is it? I thought, oh, God, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to say I, I really, really enjoyed the way you handled the, the all that strategy stuff as it was happening. I thought it was really good how you kept everybody in the back of the room uh, interested in what was happening because usually they drift off. Um, I said, oh, thank you very much. And he said, he carried on. He said, see, I do university lectures these days and it really irritates me when people at the back of the room aren't paying attention. So I was really impressed by the way you handled it. Um, and now the person in question was Gordon Murray, who ah. was the designer of the world championship winning Brabham's in the Bernie Ecclestone yes. era. 
So I had Gordon Murray in the front row, literally the guy <laughs> next to the stage, as I'm having to explain wow. how Ferrari's strategy is unfolding. And so at the end, have him come over to me. The first thing I said, which was the biggest fangirl thing I could have done, which was I went, you're Gordon, aren't you? (laughs) 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 And then the second thing I said was, would you mind saying that to my bosses over there? (laughs) Because I really like them to know you just said that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I was like, okay, guess I'm not sacked. Um, Because I thought like if, if, if I, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll see right through me. If I don't know, if I'm not on top of this, he's, he's, speaks the language around here. So, you know, he doesn't mm. need my, doesn't need my pointers. Um, so that was a, that was one of the best compliments I ever got in my career. And I got a picture with That's him. Incredible. I was like, yeah, please, uh, you know, give me your email address so I can say, if somebody's hiring me for a job, I can say, Go talk to Gordon, yeah. he'll tell you. Yes. <laughs> Statistically speaking, I do really well <laughs> in this, in this yes. arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do very well when I've got world championship winning designers sitting right in front of me, expecting me to entertain them and inform them. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. You mentioned being on stage and you were recently on camera on the grandstand with Danny Ricardo and Will Arnett. Now that Danny has a seat, has there been any talk of you taking his spot on the grandstand and being yeah. the co-host with Will Arnett? Um, there hasn't. Um, the, although... I, I had a few sympathetic friends say, does that mean that you're going to be taking Daniel Ricardo's place? As though the entire world would know who I was compared to Daniel Ricciardo. Um, I, I have actually worked it into my act because we got uh, quite a lot of negative reviews um, after that first oh. episode. Uh, and part of, the reason, part of the reason was because neither Daniel nor Will had ever anchored live television. I mean, Daniel had never done live mm-hmm. TV other than being interviewed. And being interviewed is completely different to actually hosting and anchoring because you've got to talk while someone else is talking in your ear at the same time. And you've got to understand what they're saying uh, while you're talking and you mustn't, you know, hesitate or deviate from what you're trying to say. So that's an acquired, that's an acquired skill. And Daniel even told us in rehearsal, this is, this is actually more difficult than I thought it was. Um, So we were a little bit uh, underprepared. We probably could have done with you know, we could, we could have done with that being, I felt like our, our, our pilot, like almost like if we'd rehearsed and done that the previous day, like then we would have been cooking by, by Sunday. Um, so I was actually looking forward to the second show. So I thought, well, that's now we've got the first one out of the way. Now, now we know what it looks like and what we want it to be. Now we, you know, instead of trying to imagine what it is, now we've seen it and we know what will work and what won't. And second time round will be great. And then unfortunately for us, uh, Daniel Ricardo uh, happens to be a very good driver, and Red Bull have, you know, decided that they'd like to put him in the AlphaTauri. Bit of a bummer, unless, of course, ah, yeah. secret plot twist: Daniel Ricardo does the grandstand while driving in the U.S. Grand Prix. Oh, <laughs> God. That would be that would bring uh, fan Has interaction. Has two voices in his ear. <laughs> yeah, he had me yelling stats at him while he's trying to drive. Imagine that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, there was a there was quite a charming moment in that show. I don't know if you saw it, but um, there was a there was a moment when Marshawn Lynch was on the NFL player, and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Oh. Ricardo Ricardo he he asked me when was the first time he did a shoey in a race, and mm-hmm. I I think I said it was Spa, and I knew actually no I think it was Hockenheim, but I said Spa, um, 
And then he said, no, it was a Nürburgring. And I'm sure he was wrong. I'm sure he meant Hockenheim. It was, he thinks it was a Nürburgring, but I think it was Hockenheim. Um, and I said, look, the thing is, I was, I was slightly taken off guard when you asked me because Max Verstappen's just led his 200th consecutive lap in the lead. <laughs> and Marshall Lynch, who <laughs> never watched a Formula One race before, went, whoa, like all today? No, 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 not all today. Not that many, not that many laps in a Grand Prix, um, which awesome. I actually thought was quite charming because bearing in mind, like the grandstand's not supposed to be like the Sky broadcast. It's not supposed mm-hmm. to be a bunch of industry professionals. It's supposed to be the opposite. It's supposed to be a bunch of sort of blokish type people, really, who sort of know Formula One that is out there, but don't know much more than that. Um, so I actually, some people thought, Marshall Lynch sounded dumb when he said that, but I actually thought, well, hang on a minute. The guy's never seen a, a Grand Prix before. It's like me, yeah. it'd be like me asking that question about an NFL game. Like I, I don't watch the NFL. So I ask a dumb question or what seems like a dumb question, but it's actually because I'm actually interested in what you're talking about. So I took it, you know, I took it in the, in, in the intended spirit of like, <laughs> I'm not, no, not all today, but I am, I am pleased that you're interested enough to ask. That's awesome. So it, it, in answer to the original question, we don't know what's going to happen yet. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I have to wait and see. I, I, would, I don't want to speak for the producers, but I suspect that they are weighing it up themselves. Like, what are we going to do? Because they could approach DeVries. They, they, well, yeah, the oh, grandstand with Nick DeVries. Twist could the knife. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> he, could, he could pontificate at length about how he shouldn't have been sacked. Um, right. And I probably, and I might back him up on that one. Um, but, yeah. um, I mean, we had, we, the, we were sort of thinking of contingencies based on what if Ricardo had to replace one of the Red Bull drivers on Saturday, because then you've got 24 hours before we're on air, we've got no talent. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, we also knew that a lot can happen in formula one in four or five months. And, you know, maybe that Ricardo would be in a race seat by the time Austin rolled around. So we'll see what happens with it. Um, you know, personally, I, I really enjoyed it. I was, I was flattered they called me. Apparently, the, the, the conversation went that they said, well, well, we've got Ricardo. So we've already got the, we've got the box office guy. We've got Will, who's a famous guy who's recently got into Formula One, is really interested in it, and said that we, we, need, we need one guy who can be very, very quick in making sure they stay on topic and you know, knowing all the facts and figures of it. And uh, yeah, apparently more than one person uh, named me as being the person who should do it. Um, so kind of hoping we carry on because, you know, having done yeah. the first show, I feel like, no, come on, guys, you got to get back out there. We've done, we've done the first show and we know what we're doing now. Let's, let's get yeah. on. Okay. As we're talking about the American races, you have both Miami and Vegas. Vegas has some history, but Miami now only has two years how do you prep for races like that, where there's, technically speaking, like no stats about that particular racetrack? Um, it's actually, it's not as difficult as you might think, because if you have a racetrack that has no history, then you say, okay, well, what's this driver's record at tracks that have no history? What is their record on their mm-hmm. first visit to a racetrack? You go in that direction. You could expand outwards. For instance, Max Verstappen made his car racing debut in Florida. Um, his very first racing car mm-hmm. event was in Florida when he drove right. the, 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 the Florida Winter Series in 2014 alongside a young gentleman called Will Buxton, 
who, needless to say, huh. was not as quick as Max Verstappen, but we digress. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's where, that's where Verstappen's um, racing career, car racing career began. So you can, you can expand outwards from the, the local area or you say, okay, well, what's his record in North America? Does he have a good record in North American races um, and so on? So you just keep moving around and, and chopping and changing it until you find something that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, it's actually, I've said many times in my career, if somebody, to, to a potential employer, I mean, I've said to them, you know, if someone tells you there are no stats, well, you can sack that guy because there are. Um, you hire us yeah. to go and find them. So there, there are always stats, trust me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, I've done, I do Formula E as well. I mean, the chief stats go for Formula E and there have been many nice. racetracks they go to that they've not been to before. And um, mm -hmm. sometimes the team is new. Sometimes the driver is new that they've not raced in Formula E before. Mm -hmm. And you can always come up with something. Um, the, enemy, mm -hmm. the enemy of the commentator is the blank piece of paper. You know, it's always when I submit everything, it's always like literally jamming everything onto a page, you know, for, for, for each. Mm -hmm. there's, there's never any blank space. You know, it's, it's always like, OK, I'm going to have to turn the font size down slightly to get it all in. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> you and Caroline were actually on the grid together. We were. What's that? Sorry. In Portland. Were we in Portland? Sean's first time on a race car grid, as he posted on the Internet. This is the only reason I know it. I don't keep track of your stats. <laughs> Uh, was at the Portland <laughs> Epre, and uh, you were there too, Caroline. Sean, I had no idea. Were you there with yeah, Formula I E? Did, I, yes, I was. Yeah, um, and I also I did the um, I did the circuit PA during the race as well. Yeah, with Ryan Myron. Well, yes. how about that? Well, then I definitely saw you while we were there because we were there the whole time with Formula E, and it was great. Yeah, it had been a while since I'd actually been to a Formula E race. Uh, Formula E is a really welcoming environment, and I wish it actually got more hits. It gets a lot of, I, guess, I think it gets a lot of unfair criticism for not being Formula One, basically. But mm -hmm. you know, no series is Formula One. If 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 you compared everything with Formula One, we wouldn't watch any other forms of motorsport. It's just That's another right. kind. And now they're doing 175 past your, you know, past your past your own eyes. It's just like, oh wow, yes. okay, we're moving now. Um, mm -hmm. And we saw some of the accidents in Rome this weekend. Like, wow. Okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you can start to have big accidents now at these speeds. So they're, they're, they're not playing. Yeah. You can't say that there's not excitement because with all of the overtaking and all of the crashes that you see in Formula E, I mean, what, what else do you want? I, that's what I tell the Formula One fans when they ask about Formula E. I'm like, you're getting all the excitement and the joy and the speed. You're not getting that same rumble. But I actually, I love the research side that Formula E brings into the road cars and how it'll, it affects our everyday life and electric vehicles. I mean, I just think that's so cool. But okay, back to statistics, because I do have a question. I saw a headline today about them broadcasting potentially the driver's heart rates during the race. What do you think about that? Do you think that would be a helpful thing for fans to see? Um, I, I think, I think it'd be very helpful. I, I it's, I mean, it's old technology. Um, this is never mm -hmm. brought up ever by anyone, but the, and the reason is obvious, but Ayrton Senna wore a heart rate monitor in 1994 at the Brazilian Grand Prix. Huh. And it occurred to me many times thereafter, I'm really glad he wasn't wearing one at Imola. And for obvious yeah. reasons. Um, I think that's the reason why it, the concept disappeared. It just seemed like, uh, I don't know, I feel like mm -hmm. we're a little bit, 
near the knuckle with this, what we're doing here. Now it's mm-hmm. come back. I mean, I, I heartily welcome it. I think it's fantastic when you see, okay, for people, anybody who thinks that driving a Formula One car is just a case of steer the wheel, you know, it's, it's nothing like that. It's incredibly physically demanding. And when you can see the heart rate going in the 190s, you know, you know, like, okay, whew, it's no wonder they sound out of breath on the radio when they go around some of these corners. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm for anything that helps tell the story. You know, it, it doesn't, not just, you know, this was what I do with historical reference. There's what um, AWS does with, you know, um, here's how they are, how quick they are down the street. This car's quickest down the straight in terms of the time gain. This car's quickest in this corner. Um, the, um, the, the, the track dominance overlay that they do now between two drivers, you know, here's Verstappen versus Leclerc, and you can see which mm-hmm. parts of the lap where Leclerc is quick. That's a really good addition because now you can really, it doesn't, you don't need to know anything about Formula One or racing. To understand, yeah. okay, so this part of the track, Leclerc is going to be quicker, and this part of the track, Verstappen is going to be quicker. That, boom, easy. Everyone can understand that. Again, it is technology that is decades old. It's just not mm-hmm. been, not, no one's really wanted to go near it. And I wonder how much the, the Senna situation in 94 actually influenced that. Yeah. Um, uh, in your opinion, Sean, based on the data, what, conclusions can we draw about this new formula that we've been on for two years now than this whole redesigned car well i think i mean overtaking was up last year i think i think the number was 32 percent year on year 2021 to 2022 so from an overtaking perspective it was a success of course we had that that um technical ruling prior to spa last year which this was one of those instances where i thought okay this is a moment where we see who here has been working in Formula One for a long time. Because at that point, Red Bull were already dominating or had, had dominated in recent rounds. Verstappen had just won from 10th in Hungary and so on. And the talk doing the rounds was, oh, this technical rule is going to come out. Let's, I bet this is it. This is it now. Red Bull, they're going to have their advantage eroded. It's going to be a much closer grid. And I said, you're new here, aren't you? You haven't given <laughs> thought to the fact that it might actually exacerbate Red Bull's advantage and make it bigger. Mm-hmm. And look what we got at Spa. You know, Verstappen started 14th because of penalties and he was in the lead by lap 13. Um, so, mm. uh, you know, that's third, cl- third fastest climb from that position to lead a Grand Prix in the history of the World Championship. So um, Red Bull looked untouchable thereafter. So that ruling, whether, you know, whether imagined or not, didn't hurt Red Bull at all. Um, they look pretty good this season as well on the basis that they haven't lost a Grand Prix. Uh, so on that basis, maybe, okay, it's not as close as it was in 2021, but there was no guarantee that if we carried on with those regulations, it would have carried on being that close. You don't know. Um, what we have seen is a surprising concertina of the rest of the grid. The fact that we're only a year and a half into this concept and in Austria, Q1, all the cars in Q1 separated by 0.858 of a second. That's the closest mm-hmm. grid, closest Q1 that we've ever had in the history of Formula One. When all the cars have been on the racetrack in qualifying, it has never been that close. Less than one second covering the whole grid. In the 80s, you know, one second covered first and second on the grid. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. Imola in 1988, Senna was on pole. Nelson Piquet was third on the grid in the Lotus. and He was 3.3 seconds off pole. and He was third on the grid. Now, 0.8 wow. covers everyone. Logan Sargent is 0.8 off the fastest time, and he's 
bottom of the list. Um, so it has never, ever been closer. So from that perspective, you have to de deem the, the rules to be a big success. From the converse point of view, the cars at low speed look like lumbering turds. They just, you know, they, they just look like <laughs> land yachts. They're horrible. They're overweight. They're very, very stiff. So they bounce over the curves and just look horrible at low speed. Yeah, they're, they're great at high speed. But, you know, there is, when they go through slow chicanes, they just look appalling. Maybe they didn't factor that in when they considered the rules. But uh, from, a, from an overtaking perspective, yes, it, it, is, it is a better formula as far as I'm concerned. And it is a closer formula. But we have one car, not a team right now, but one car right now that is demonstrably better than the rest in race trim. But if you, if you disregard that, it is incredibly close elsewhere. We've had eight different drivers on the podium in the last five races, I think it is. So with the exception of the, that one guy, um, it has, Formula One looks in amazing shape. It's just a shame that the one guy is hogging all the race wins. If it wasn't for him, people would be saying, wow, this is an absolute classic of a year. I mean, imagine who would have thought, mm -hmm. if we take Verstappen out of the equation, who would have thought before we started this year that I'd be talking to, about, uh, talking to you about Fernando Alonso potentially winning a race? And Lando Norris potentially winning a race, right? So you know, and then you know, and then also throw into the mix, you know, oh, casually throw in Russell and Hamilton and Ocon, Ocon mm -hmm. potentially winning oh, a race, yes. um, or Piastri. You know, it, yeah. it, this is this is amazing stuff. I mean, it really is. Um, but um, unfortunately, uh, first across the line is always the, the same guy. So <laughs> we can kind of use Verstappen having a day off, really. Um, I actually just recorded a podcast earlier today, um, which I do for The Race, the website, The Race. Uh, we do a thing called F1 yep. Focus. And the subject matter today uh, was early, the, early, the earliest that world championships have been clinched. Um, the reason I brought it up is because this weekend in Hungary, the Friday of this weekend, will be the anniversary of when Michael Schumacher clinched the title in 2002. July the 21st wow. was the day he clinched the title oh. in 2002. So if you think Verstappen's dominating now, again, you've obviously <laughs> not been here terribly long because we've seen way, way worse than this. Because while Michael oh. was doing that, Sean was calling Formula One saying, get me in there. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, 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 and fortuitously, you know, they're in the middle of what you might call Formula One's night shift when everyone was just trying to stay awake. Um, yeah. And they probably thought, yes, please, please, God, give us anything. Give us anything you can give us right now to jazz this up. So with statistics, you know, you, you can get them to tell whatever story you want. Are you ever tempted to use them, you know, for nefarious, the dark side purposes? I, I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm tempted to use it in that way because... It, if, it, if it's entertaining, it goes in, whether it's positive or negative. For instance, I mean, right now, it's hard not to represent Checo Perez in a negative light. But yet, it is still possible. Consider this, if you will. In the last two races, Perez has increased his advantage over Alonso for second in the championship at both races. Even though everyone's getting on his case about not getting to Q3, he has actually extended the lead over Alonso at both races. Now, if I if it just gave you that in isolation, that sounds very positive. Uh, but that is part of my job because obviously the negative stats about Perez are self-evident right now. But you want to counterbalance it with something that's positive. So if he has a good weekend, 
you can say, well, you know, on the bright side, Perez recently, although he's been going through a lot, has actually consolidated his advantage in second quarter. And then you can lead off in a positive sense. Um, I always am aware that in my role, there's actually a tremendous amount of soft power to influence the entire mm -hmm. narrative of Formula One because so many people use mm -hmm. me that however I word something might have genuine repercussions to a driver's career. Um, it only ever happened once where I had a mild falling out with a driver's manager about it. And that was, I, th I don't think he'd mind me saying it. It was the manager of Marcus Ericsson. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, when Ericsson was in Formula 1 with Sauber, it was, uh, the stat I'd written was that he'd beaten his teammate, Felipe Nazar, at a race, um, despite the fact uh, he employed a one-stop strategy and Nazar had a two-stop strategy. The, the implication was that Ericsson, I was trying to say, Ericsson had driven smart and conserved his tyres and everything and managed to beat Nazar, even though Nazar was on the, the faster strategy. But his management thought I was saying Ericsson only beat him because he was on a one-stopper. So it was slight misreading of the sentiment. Um, and he kind of, he, he, he flew off the handle at me a little bit. We, we actually knew each other before because we'd worked in TV together. Um, and I said to him, no, no, you've, you've, you've read it wrong. Here. I was trying to say that Marcus actually did a good job because he had to play it, play yeah, it technical. You divide the odds. And, and keep, keep yeah. everything... Yeah, yeah, keep it going and not get beaten by Nazar, who could use who had all the grip in the world and didn't get past him. And what was quite funny afterwards was that his manager said, yeah, he apologized to me. And he said, look, the thing is, is, you know, you'd be amazed how being a Formula One driver's manager turned you into this paranoid person. <laughs> you, think, you think everyone's out to get you um, because there's so much politics in Formula One that you're convinced that everyone else is there to torpedo the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so we laughed about it in the end, but I am always aware that you try, you always try and be fair to the driver, you know, and the team. Um, uh, you know, I might poke fun at Ferrari's strategy calls, but you may also counter it by saying, hey, you know, here's the times that they got things right, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, you always want to give both sides of the coin. Um, you very rarely do you just want to say, well, this person's useless. And another good example, I mean, I was one of the only people who defend Nikita Mazepin at Haas because um, while everyone else, it, it became sort of very fashionable to pile on um, compared to Mick Schumacher. And I said, I'm sorry, no, there is no way Nikita Mazepin is this slow. There, there's some, there must be something wrong within that car or within mm -hmm. that team. Mazepin was a race winner in F2. He qualified on the front row in F2. Mick Schumacher never qualified on the front row in an F2 race. Nikita Mazepin did. So I already knew, like, there is no way. There's just no way he's a second slower than Mick Schumacher. No way at all. I, I know, I get it, he's not the second coming of Tazio Nuvolari. Okay, yeah, fine. But there is no way he's the second slower than Mick Schumacher. And it, it became fashionable because, you know, he's the Russian guy. He, he doesn't didn't do himself any favors with his attitude, particularly in interviews sometimes. Um, but it's not my job to, to sort of say, yeah, yeah, you're right. He's, he's shit. Why is he doing here? It's not my job to do that. My job is to say, well, hang on a minute. They might have a point here. This might, mm -hmm. this might not be paranoia. Um, mm -hmm. It might genuinely be a case of no, something's amiss. So mm -hmm. I, I was one of the few people 
who I, I don't want to say I died on that hill. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't that <laughs> passionate about the defense, but I was willing to say, based on the numbers, this should not be happening. So yeah, yeah sometimes it sometimes it can manifest. You know, you try you try you try and be impartial. You try and just look at the numbers and say it really should be this or it should be that. You don't you don't sort of base it on personal opinion. You know, if I like a driver on a personal level or it's their home race or anything, you don't you, you don't try and favor them. You know, you still just do the same thing every week and the rest is up to them. Mm-hmm. I always say if there's a problem, drive faster. You'd be amazed how quickly the problem goes away. <laughs> That's the truth. I'll try not to offend the Canadian in the room. Did you feel like Nicholas Latifi was in a similar boat as Nikita Mazepin or was his situation different? Well, Latifi, I mean, I used to call him Steady Eddie because Latifi uh, tended to be, he tended to not have the spectacular results of George Russell. I mean, that's that's just the facts. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, when when the opportunity came along, he, he could produce the goods. He was, he was just a little bit more um, erratic. Um, you know, Russell was pretty dependable in terms of being a giant killer, as is Alex Albon in that car now. Latifi mm-hmm. less so. Mm-hmm. But Latifi was the first guy to get the Williams into Q3 last year. And um, Mm -hmm. his seventh, you know, when he was seventh in Hungary in 2021, you know, that was the best finish for a Williams in a dry race since 2017. So, um, you know, on the occasions he he could produce the goods. Suzuka last year, remember on Friday at Suzuka last year when he took a wrong turn and he ended up looking at a barrier instead of going Mm -hmm. through the chicane. And everyone poked fun at him for that. In the race, he scored points. In that race where it was torrentially raining, he actually yeah. scored. So he yeah. went from being this figure of fun on Friday to storing points for Williams in the race. So he, he did prove that he had a bit about him. Again, I, I'm not putting him in league with Verstappen and Hamilton. I'm not saying he's that level of talent. But he also was not, put it this way, I, I have seen m- many, many rich kids who didn't have anywhere near the talent of a Latifi or especially anywhere near the talent of a Lance Stroll, who's a much better driver than people think he is, but he's a poor qualifier and he kind of causes his own problems with that. Um, although he's out-qualified Alonso twice in the last three races, mm-hmm. I think it is. Um, so, yeah, the, Latifi, solid. You know, he, yeah. not embarrassing. Certainly not embarrassing. Yeah. There, there are a couple of, of high-profile incidents. Obviously, there's the Abu Dhabi one, but um, a couple of incidents where you thought, well, that didn't look great. But there were also moments where you thought, wow, okay, this guy can actually, mm-hmm. this guy can pedal this thing. Um, so, you know, yeah. good for him. And he was an F2 race, and then he was an F2 race winner. So, he, he, you know, he'd gotten pretty good by that point. Right. Okay. So, you mentioned Suzuka last year. Were you on the front lines of the panic when Max Verstappen crossed the line and there was this big question whether or not Charles was going to get that penalty? And whether or not it was going to solidify the championship. I'm sorry if I've hit a sore spot. <laughs> I do remember that being a rough day. Is, it, is, is this a video podcast? Yes. Well, no, no, no. no it doesn't not, have to okay, be. The, no. the, 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 the listeners need to know that I have my hands over my face right now. <laughs> I have PTSD remembering oh, so that day. I'm so sorry. Um, you don't have the answer. So, so what had happened? Here's what. Here's the chronology of what happened that day, right? So we knew it was going to be raining. So we'd run through the scenario. Obviously, when it rains at Suzuka, it really rains. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And it would be remiss not to mention that on the date of recording, it is the eighth anniversary of the passing of Jules Bianchi, uh, whose, uh, whose grave mm-hmm. I went to visit earlier this evening. Um, mm. So we knew that Suzuka rain can be very serious. So we'd run through all the scenarios beforehand for, okay, so they've changed it post spa 2021. Now it's, you know, 25%, 50%, 75%. Here's how the points work. And everyone had run through this, not just me, but mm-hmm. everyone I work with. So Sky, for instance, you know, had a multitude of full screen graphics explaining the scenarios, blah, blah, blah. And um, then we had this very, very long red flag. And we thought we might not have a race here because we hadn't done two laps. Um, and then eventually we restarted and we do have a race. And, and literally as the race is ticking off the laps, we're looking at the waypoints along the way. Okay, 25% distance, 50%. You know, we might get to 50%, at which point, you know, we get half points and also the faster lap bonus. Okay, so that's what we're probably looking at. Now, as it turned out, someone at the FIA had read the regulations in a sort of legal type way, like as a, as a lawyer sort of thing, okay. and said, that's not what the regulation says. It says, if the race is stopped and cannot be restarted, the points are given this way. But we've restarted the race. We're not mm-hmm. stopping the race. The race will run out to time. So we're, it's not that we've stopped it and can't be restarted it. The race is finishing under the normal circumstances of the time limit. Ergo, in a legal sense, you have to award full points. Now, at some point, mm-hmm. this had made its way around <laughs> all of um, Formula One's production department. And um, the camera, I, I've, some of my friends are cameramen um, out on the racetrack, and they told me in their ear, they knew at that point late in the race that Leclerc and Perez was effectively a battle to see if Verstappen was going to clinch the championship that day. Um, yeah. So they were following it as though, like, this is it now. If, if Perez gets Leclerc, Verstappen's the champion. Unfortunately, no one had told us. So oh. we were actually doing the race, assuming this is half points. Obviously, Leclerc wants to hold on to second, but it's not, it's not the clinching situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so race finishes. We are all, almost all of us, under the illusion that it's, it's going to be half points. Uh, title rolls on to the next race. Um, and then Johnny Herbert is told in his ear, yep. oh, it's a penalty. Verstappen, that means Verstappen's clinched a title. So Verstappen's told he's world champion. And then, of course, you might remember that in the, yep. in the cool-down room, Verstappen was convinced he hadn't won the title. Yeah. And, um, and so was everybody else. And I've spoken to other team principals, and they, didn't, they, were, they all thought it was half point. No one had told us of this legal ease reading of huh. the rule book, which unfortunately for us was the correct reading of the rules because you have to read it in that legal sense. Yes. It, this is what it says. I know what you meant it. I know what you think it means, but this is what it actually says. Um, so unfortunately, the person at the FIA who read the regulations that way was correct. The mistake was no one told us. Yeah. <laughs> so we all, looked, oh. we all looked phenomenally stupid on live TV that we didn't, we couldn't get our ass from our elbow and didn't know who, whether Verstappen was the champion or not. But we were, you know, we were in the same boat as the teams. And um, I can tell you, I don't want to name names because I work with a lot of broadcasters and a lot of commentators. But I had several messages from some very, very annoyed commentators who felt like they'd been made to look like idiots on live television because they explained 
for several hours. So this is how it's going to work, folks. Yeah. And then suddenly it's like, oh, wait, <laughs> no, lol. LOL, the Stafford's <laughs> champion, thanks for coming. It was, it was like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't our greatest, wasn't the greatest few hours of our broadcast history, unfortunately. Well, I'm sorry. Um, I wasn't trying but... to bring up like old, <laughs> I wasn't trying to bring up old wounds. I didn't think you guys looked stupid. I think we were just all confused. I think everybody was just confused, but I didn't think anybody looked stupid. Yeah, I think it would have been a lot worse if the teams understood mm-hmm. it correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, if, mm-hmm. if, if all the teams had been like, well, yeah, w- what did you think was going to happen? Then we would have looked like real idiots. But if even the teams, if even Red Bull mm-hmm. didn't think that Verstappen had won the championship, then mm-hmm. that's kind of our get out of jail free cards. Like, look, yeah. <laughs> those, those are the smartest people here, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're only doing this. We're only doing this because we're not smart enough to do their job. And if even they thought, that yeah. it wasn't a four points race, then, you know, what are we to do? Because yeah. if if thing is, if, if Red Bull had said, oh, it's definitely a half points race, as broadcasters, we're not going to argue the toss with them. We're not going to say, no. oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Adrian Newey, you're wrong. It's this. <laughs> you know, you're never, ever going to, no broadcaster is ever going to be that arrogant mm-hmm. to, to, to talk that way. So if the teams are, you know, I mentioned Frank Wilson earlier, my first boss at Speed Channel. And he always, he always said the mantra, remember, the teams are smarter than us. If the teams say it's this, we should follow them. Because even if they're wrong, most of the time they're right. So you're more likely to get more things right by following the team's lead on these things. That's good advice. That's okay. really good advice. Well, thank you so much for being with us. This has been, mm-hmm. dare I say, and I hope I don't insult any of our previous guests but this might be the best interview we've ever had here at gravel trap f1 so thank you so much for joining it's been us really fun it's been so fun everybody else everybody else is crap compared to me i mean it's basically <laughs> it just gonna have to come back next week and extol the virtues of 1980s grand prix racing cross-referencing pierre carlo ginzani and Amazing. then uh, making some oblique reference to something that Fernando Alonso did in a race in 2009 while silently insulting half of my Twitter audience. It's great. It's, it's perfect. It's just perfect. An, all in a day's work. And we never mentioned, we never mentioned the fact that I'm in Monaco right now, which is a shame oh, yes. because I was looking forward to sliding that humble brag in under the radar, <laughs> but I never oh, actually got to it. That you were in the meeting with Toto and Nick DeVry the other day that went viral. Was I? <laughs> I, I might have been. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He took the photo. Yes. <laughs> are you are you working for me one or am I? Because pretty sure it's my job. <laughs> yeah, all right, Nostra dumbass. Why don't you come and do this job next time? Oh, that happened the other day on Twitter. Somebody asked him, Do you even know Daniel Ricard who Daniel Ricardo is? No. <laughs> Sean just replied with a screenshot of the grandstand of him and Danny Ricardo on TV <laughs> together. And that was his reply. It was brilliant. That's amazing. <laughs> so That's good. Amazing. It, was, it was it was too easy. I, I couldn't I couldn't resist it. I was trying so hard. And in the end I was like, no, nah, screw it. We're doing it. We're doing this. <laughs> <laughs>